Before we get started, I just want to let you know that I apologize that this episode has been released a day after it was promised on Wednesday, as we're going to one time a week. When we were recording yesterday, we ran into a little snafu, and Mark's recording didn't upload when we did the conversation, and there were backups, and the backups didn't work, and thankfully, I had a backup backup, which we could use. Now, I apologize that this backup backup uh, sometimes gets a little choppy. There's a handful of times where you may not clearly hear Mark for a couple words, as well as Stephen. I apologize for that. We've learned our lesson, and now we're going to have a backup, backup, backup if this ever happens again. Anyway, I want to let you know, I'm so sorry. We'll be back on a regular routine of Wednesdays starting next week. I hope you enjoy the show. You're listening to The Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my two good friends, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, who's a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. Hey guys, man, okay, so I just said this to you before, I ruined the surprise, but I have to really admit, going a whole week without hanging with you guys was really hard, and I really did honestly felt like I was confused in my mind that maybe we had broken up in a really bad way, and we were in bad terms, and now That's we're coming back to actually to see how are we going to get getting, along we're together. We're getting the band. We're getting the band. <laughs> yeah, we together, are. <laughs> it's it's totally. It was really only like two days longer than we usually wait. It feels <laughs> totally different. I'm yeah. really alone, guys. Maybe three days. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you get to go to the hospital, Mark. So, uh, right. And right. uh, Stephen, I don't know where you go, but... Uh, <laughs> You go I don't either, Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. that's right. How's it going? Good. We're doing, we're doing yeah. fine here, and we got adventures in reopening. I think we're yeah. gonna, you know, chat a little bit about what that, what that looks like in uh, at least on the micro scale of Colorado here. Uh, what are you up to these days, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, basically the same. We're we're still. I mean, my work is kind of continuing on as ever. Turns out there's still a need for models, and so we're trying to pump them out <laughs> as, sure. as as well as we can. But but you're right. I mean, like, and not a lot has physically changed, but I feel like a lot has sort of mentally changed as we're starting to grapple with like what it seems like a new phase is actually going to mean for all of us. Yeah, I think we're going to get into that for sure today because I'm the same way. I haven't gone out that much or gosh, that sounds overinflated. I haven't gone out at all. <laughs> so I've gone in my backyard and that's it with my boys trying to garden. I have so many gardening questions for you, Mark. So next oh, week we're, yeah, we're starting yeah. another new podcast, Gardening gardening, gardening is Us, and we're going to talk about <laughs> gardening. No, but a few things to talk about before we get started. Always, I'm so appreciative of all the reviews. Thank you for all who've left, left one. If you haven't, if you can, we greatly appreciate that. Go on to iTunes. I'll try to leave that in the show notes. Leave a review. If you have a couple extra minutes, uh, make a comment as well. We're also looking for more donations to help us pay for all this equipment that I put on my credit card. <laughs> so uh, to help us continue going on. So thank you for all the benefactors who've helped us on Patreon and PayPal and Venmo. It is hugely appreciated, especially in a time where I think it's hard to kind of get into our pockets uh, when we're trying to wonder what's going to be like the next few months. So thank you. If you want to give a small donation, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, as little as $5 a month, or just a simply a one-time small uh, donation through PayPal or Venmo that's in the show notes. So, uh, so we want to give a shout out. There's a, there's a few of them who've been gracious and given us support and has actually made comments. And uh, so a shout out to Bruce in Australia, uh, Tina in Cyprus, and Fergal in Ireland. And we were talking about this. We would love to hear from you again. And you're like, how's it going over there? How are you dealing with it? You know, we've had some correspondence, but just we you know we're getting we're getting the idea of Colorado and and uh, and Boston. But would love to hear uh, how you guys are feeling and how you guys are dealing with it. Uh, do we say across the pond? 
in general because <laughs> because that I sounds that's very that. <laughs> <laughs> you might say that no i don't i, I don't you can tell I'm, yeah but really but anybody you know i think both domestic and international if anybody's yeah. got some stories anecdotes you know one or two sentences about just what it looks like when you look out your front door when you go to the grocery store what mm-hmm. things are feeling like in the here and now for you guys uh, maybe we can just run through a couple of those and just kind of get a sense of what our broader community is up to thinking about uh, and looking forward to. And maybe the best way to do this is this, this will go go uh, dovetail greatly with uh, announcement that I have. But if you want to email it to us, so I know some of you just want to find a way, just email me at matt, M-A-T-T, at livingthereal.com. That's probably the easiest way. Just send a little uh, email about what's going on, how you guys are handling it. And so I want to just do a little announcement. I've been working on this for a few weeks now. Finally, just kind of soft launched. Uh, I have a new podcast. I'm addicted to podcasting, guys. That's all I'm going to do. I don't sleep. <laughs> I'm just podcasting about everything. So, but this has been a long time coming. Uh, I'm so excited. Uh, I'm, I'm started my Living the Real podcast. Uh, it really started from way back when, when I read this book uh, and it mentioned this phrase, living the real. It just struck me. I don't know why. It just struck me and it evoked a lot of emotion. And I began to ask the question to myself a lot. Am I living the most real life possible? Am I living the real? And honestly, most of the time I would answer, I just don't know. Or sometimes I would answer like, definitely not. And so that really provoked me like, what am I doing? Am I living the most intentional life? And from this kind of self-discovery and research and reading, I developed like a whole model called the 3M framework that I'm like, ah, I love it and I want to share it. So I thought, what a better way to do it is through a podcast. It's going to start through interviews and conversations with people who kind of live this, this lifestyle in one way or another. Already about three, three episodes in. It is not in iTunes yet. Again, just like, just like pandemic. It took us like two weeks to be even possibly in there. But it's in Spotify and a few other places. I will leave the link in the show notes. And if you want to, go to livingthereal.com and sign up to be notified of when uh, all the channels are released, the directories, as well as I have more uh, blogs and videos coming out soon. So go to livingthereal.com. If you want more information, sign up and you will be notified. All right, let's get in. There's some news. It's been a week since we hung out. There's tons of stuff to talk about. There's stuff we didn't even talk about from last week. And these are a couple of things. So the first thing is, uh, I want to start with my thing I had, guys. So Friday night, this is what I do. When you have a podcast on the COVID, uh, I just think about it in the weirdest times. Like, so at bed, I'm thinking about COVID. Terrible time to think about COVID, right? <laughs> it's, it's not, it's, it's, I mean, nobody does a meditation on COVID, right? That's not how you go to sleep, right? At least, at least, at least not my, not my apps. It's not advisable. <laughs> not advisable, right? So here I am meditating on COVID, getting drowsy. And I had this idea. So I've seen all of these Facebook posts, guys. Uh, about how flu is worse than COVID and all the, and I'm just, it's just irking me to no end, right? It's, it's just, mm. and then I had this perfect analogy, right? Of what they're trying to say. If you believe that flu is worse than COVID, then there's no other way than you have to believe that my 2008 Nissan Altima four cylinder is faster than a Tesla. You have to believe that logically. So how did I get there? How did I get there? Ask me that question, Mark. <laughs> How'd you get there, man? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for asking. <laughs> so the answer is this. So if you put my Nissan Altima and you floor it, pedal to the metal, it, you can get about 100 miles per hour. It takes about a minute to get there, right? It takes about a minute, but you're, you're about 100 miles per hour. So here I'm going. I'm floored. Now let's compare this to a Tesla. So you floor the Tesla, same model, same way. They're both floored. But the only difference is I measure the Tesla at second one and second two. And that's it. So I see second one, it's at 40 miles per hour. I double that time 
Second two, it's 50 miles per hour. My Nissan Altima is twice as fast as a Tesla. Done. Bam. Drop the mic, guys. Was that good? <laughs> was that good? <laughs> Mark, was that good? Me, I think me. there's only one answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, You're know. right. It's great. It's not good. It's that's great. Right. That's it's right. Great. That's right. So, so that's it. And I think that is a great way to illustrate. And I've talked to some people and it's helped them to realize that we're not comparing apples to apples. We're comparing, the, they're both floored but they're at two radically different times in their life, right? So basically COVID's at second two and in the flu, the flu has been floored for quite a long time and probably needs a really good oil change. So that's, <laughs> that's interesting. It's yeah. Uh, your, your Ultima might also need an oil change. Really it actually does. There, it actually, it actually needs, it needs a lot more than oil change guys. That's a whole other podcast we can do on, on car maintenance next week. Okay. So let's get into to more fun things. Mark, I want to pick your brain about this. I saw this last week. We talked weeks past about how we did see how men might be more vulnerable or maybe are more vulnerable to COVID than women. Mm. And then there yeah. was uh, another article that seemed to advance this a little bit, talking about that it may be the high enzyme levels that men have that make them vulnerable. I have no idea what this is talking about. So can you tell me a little yeah. about what this might be? You know, I think so. Um, this is similar to some of the things that we've talked about before in terms of the infectivity of COVID, what organ systems tend to be involved, um, and the patient populations that have higher morbidity and mortality. And it all seems to be the hypothesis is that this may be related something somewhat to the ACE2 enzyme. And so, again, ACE2, so it's not just any enzyme, it's not that men have more enzymes in general, but there is a particular enzyme called ACE2 that's um, on the surface of cells. This is the one that gets hijacked by the coronavirus to gain entry into the cells um, and begin its replication process there. So that point in the chain of infection. And the hypothesis is that if you have more of those receptors, uh, you may be more susceptible to a more overwhelming or larger effect. And so it is true that we've seen kind of populationally that it seems like men have a higher mortality rate. And also evidence shows that there is a higher ACE2 enzyme level in general populationally in men than women. And and so perhaps there's a line to be drawn from those things. Um, and so I think that's what this article is is suggesting. Okay. So basically, is the enzyme and receptor synonymous? Because I hear in, I hear ACE2 receptor yeah, so, as three weeks great. ago. So an, an enzyme is a, is essentially a protein that has a specific purpose and it serves some biochemical purpose. And what's a protein? So protein is a chain of amino acids right in the body. Um, and the neat thing about amino acids is that they have these side groups on them and they fold in this really intricate and predictable way. And so you can get very, very complex functions uh, and very precise functions within cells by these long chains of proteins that get transcribed and then they fold within some of the organelles in the cell and they do different things. And some of those protein chains fold and then they get transported and they exist as sort of gateways on the cell membrane. And they have other proteins they might interact with or other side, you know, components. And what that does is it serves to regulate traffic into and out of the cell. Uh, and there's lots and lots of different types of receptor proteins. This is only one of them. Receptor proteins are often targets for you know, pharmaceuticals because uh, by changing the way that they operate, um, you can change the intracellular balance of important things, okay. and then you can have downstream effects. Um, and so there's lots and lots of examples of drugs that kind of make use of these systems. Uh, similarly, you know, pathogens like viruses can make use of receptors at times to gain entry into host cells. Um, but we're talking kind of about the same. So when we talk about 
in an enzyme that's a protein with a particular function uh and in this case it acts as a as a receptor membrane or as a receptor on the cell membrane okay great steven i want to chat with you about this so it was this article coronavirus could burn out naturally so vaccine not needed former who director claims is this true is this possible is this probable? Right. So there's there are there are a couple of different scenarios that could definitely play out here. But I think that it's useful to to think about what that burnout scenario is being compared to. So the pandemic burning out does sound like a very good thing for sure, but we're still going to be in this pandemic phase for some time. I and mean, what what burning out means is reaching herd immunity in the population, right? Which requires probably on the order of 60% of, of people to become infected with this thing. And and that could very well happen. And if, if immunity is perfect and permanent, then, then the transmission might die out and we might never see SARS-CoV-2 again. There's not a lot of precedent for that. So most of what we've been comparing the this pandemic to, you know, in terms of the epidemiology of it is past flu pandemics. Now, like you were saying, this is not the flu. There's a thousand reasons why this isn't the flu, but, but in terms of transmission, the flu is a good place to start for thinking about how it spreads, not necessarily the clinical manifestation, but, or the severity, but, but the mode of transmission is very similar. And when we have flu pandemics, when you have a new strain of flu that emerges, it enters into circulation after the fact as a seasonal strain. So I think what what the what this person was trying to say essentially is that there are a lot of scenarios in which this coronavirus could also enter into seasonal circulation. Mm. But there are also some scenarios where it could burn out after the fact. But either way, we're going to be dealing with the pandemic for the foreseeable future. And that's really sort of our first priority. And it, it'd be great if it went away after that. But that's that's thinking probably another year and a half down the road. That That's sort of the timescale of a burnout that we would be thinking about with this, with this epidemic. Okay. So the bad news is this article is not telling us that, hey, it could burn out next month and we're all good. It's right. basically just another another long game possible solution. Exactly. Then going back to you one more time, Stephen, this was an article that came across last week. We wanted to talk about it. We thought it was really interesting, but we just ran out of time. Read this article. It seemed really cool. It's all about the modeling idea and then how models are starting to agree. And that part was interesting, but the most fascinating part of it was the subpart was talking about how there is this attempt to create a standardization of modeling so that other, like whether Harvard or Washington begin to have, they can compare better to better apples to apples. Have you have you been involved with this? And what do you know about this? And have we seen something like this in the past? Yeah. So this is this is some really cool stuff. So forgive me while while I while I go off get a your, bit on mathematical models. Get your martini, guys. It's gonna be a good one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So yeah. So the idea here is that it, clearly there's a proliferation of models for this epidemic, and people are building models in different way and assuming different things about how the disease spreads and this sort of thing. And so there are a lot of questions for like how to make sense of this and whose model do you listen to? So early on, very early on in this outbreak, the CDC was putting together weekly calls and essentially asking different people who are in the business of developing models to, to think about doing these kinds of forecasts. Now, the CDC has been doing the same sort of thing for the flu for a number of years. A couple of years ago, they started a competition between groups that do modeling of epidemics to basically see which group could do the best in projecting the number of flu cases that we were going to see in however many number of weeks. Man, Steven, so what kind of stadium is, did you guys have to get yeah. to, to put uh, that yeah. on? I mean, it, it, it was yeah. rocking. 
Rockets. I mean, lottery only. Definitely. Yeah, totally. It was the best. It got, you know, signing bonuses everywhere. And it was just like agents involved. Insane. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. So, yeah, anybody who wants like real fame, this is where you find it. Totally. Yeah. So, right. So, so here we were sort of hunched over our computers building these models. And, and it turned out that over the course of this, this competition, there was one team that started really consistently winning. And we found out that, that the team that won took the outputs from all of the other models, <laughs> took a weighted average of them, and then submitted that as their own model. And they were beating the shorts off of everybody else awesome. who was submitting these sophisticated models, right? No degree necessary for that, that, that one. Yeah, yeah, but it was brilliant. I mean, so there's there's actually been a fair amount of, of research after the fact, like why did this do so well? And, and and the idea is that you know each each model is built to sort of be very faithful to one particular aspect of the spread of disease, but of course epidemiology is a very complex thing. And so each model was able to capture different parts of, of, of the spread very well. And other, at other times it would fail. And by putting together sort of a, an average uh, of the models, and, and it was, it was an intelligent average. It was an average that sort of weighted the models based on how well they had performed in previous weeks. That then allowed you to extrapolate a lot better because you could get behavior out of this average model that you could never get out of any one of the single models, but it was still rooted in these underlying, you know, principles of the spread of disease. So so what you end up with is much better forecasts. And and so the CDC has actually taken that approach and made it their their main approach for for forecasting the flu. This this is now what they do. These are the flu forecasts that the CDC publishes. And so they wanted to do something similar for coronavirus. So same platform, except in this case we weren't in competition. We were all just trying to to develop models together. Now, those calls were very interesting at the beginning because, you know, Matt, as you mentioned, there's sort of been this convergence of models where they're starting to predict similar sorts of things. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, that's partly just because we have more data. So the models have been trained to a longer period of time. There's just more information they have to go off of. So they're just going to become sort of more accurate as time goes on. Mm-hmm. But we were very careful as modelers from the outset that we knew that just by conversing with each other, we would, we would sort of subconsciously reach a consensus on what certain parameters were, what certain truths were, even if that consensus wasn't real, even if it wasn't rooted in, in reality, but was instead just based off of happenstance of how the conversations tended to happen. So we tried to be very careful about not discussing our preconceptions about what the different parameter values were, what different things were that could go into these models so that we could maintain as much diversity in the models as, as possible so that we could get these sorts of different types of behavior and then average them into something that worked better in the long term. So that was a very intentional sort of thing from the outset. So it's it's not a surprise to me that the models are getting better as time goes on. But this, these are the sorts of things that we're thinking about as we're building these models. And it really is this huge team effort to try to come together with, with, uh, with these projections. So you're telling me that you guys came together and worked together to find a solution and may have different different ways by which you approach things, but together you came across something bigger than yourselves. Wow. <laughs> that is revolution. I've never, is ever heard this before. And speaking of which, you said earlier that epidemiology is complicated. That is not what Facebook says, Stephen. Yeah. And yeah. I, so I don't know if I can trust what you're saying. <laughs> Cause yeah, yeah. Cause, you might want to hire somebody else for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's been that's fun, awesome. So. That's really I I mean it's super cool. Yeah, I mean yeah. like I'm I'm nerding out with you, Stephen, by the way. That was really 
Really awesome. Yeah, sorry. The one percent of our listeners who cares about <laughs> yeah, these things totally. is like going wild right now, and everybody else is just like making sudden, themselves a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, totally. all of a sudden, I'll look at the Spotify and the individual yeah. ratings, and everybody like bailed out at twenty percent in, and like that was yeah. the, <laughs> the, the. There's just one percent of these nerds like, yes, keep going. This yeah, is the yeah. best. Okay. <laughs> So we got one of our listeners and one of our great has helped us financially. Uh, John, thank you so much. He had a couple of questions, excuse me, that I want to throw here. The first one was about the vaccine. He's concerned and wondering about how realistic is it, is it that we're going to have a vaccine in January? There's talk about it. Is it more just this kind of blind optimism because we're looking for something to bite down on? Or is there something we can look towards that might show that there is a glimmer of hope that January is possible, even though it would be absolutely record-setting vaccine? Yeah, so the the January timeframe is really based on the most optimistic scenario, given the constraints that we've talked about in previous podcasts about getting things licensed and approved and making sure that they're safe. Those things take a certain amount of time, and that's those timeframes are very well established. And just by projecting those timeframes forward, essentially in the most optimistic of scenarios, by the time you get everything approved and the vaccine sort of ramped up and available for general consumption, that brings us to about January. Okay. So, so January is, is I would say the most optimistic scenario. There are some people trying to sort of pull that back a little bit, okay. but that's, that's really just sort of based off of the regulatory framework that goes into vaccines. Now, that said, there are a lot of people working on vaccines right now and doing some really incredible and really promising work. So most recently, I think just this past week, there were the news reports of Moderna, which is a yeah. company that's actually based here in Boston that have been, that they have this really innovative approach for developing vaccines. And they showed basically in the first stage of their of their trials that the vaccine is able to mount an immune response against the SARS coronavirus spike protein, which is sort of the first step. That's that's the proof of concept that shows that this this could work and provide some immunity against the coronavirus. So that's great. That's that's the first of these trials that I've heard that that really has those kinds of sort of tangible results yet. And so so I think that there's there's certainly hope. You know, it's not just speculative dreaming that 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 could be the time scale that we're working on. But that said, there are a lot of obstacles that we could run into in the meantime as well. So thankfully, there are a lot of different people working on this. Actually, a, a colleague from CU, Anna Blakeney, who I don't know if Mark, you also knew. Yeah, so she's yeah. over. Yeah, <laughs> she's over in England right now, also working with her team on a vaccine as well. And, and I've talked with her a little bit about that. So there's there's teams all over the world doing this this kind of work. And I think, again, this is like you were saying, people coming together with a common goal, like that, that's what's going to get us get us through this. So I'm 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 very very cautiously hopeful. Good way to put it. Yeah, and it does seem. I mean, I think one of the questions had been: Is this even going to happen? Like, are we going to see a coronavirus vaccine? And one of the one of the things that had been kind of gone around the news cycle early on, and then has seemed to have been dropped, is the idea that we don't seem to maintain immunity against coronaviruses over a long period of time, that there's kind of a waning of our uh, natural immunity to the coronaviruses that we've experienced, you know, previously. And so this question of, you know, if we do develop a vaccine, what what's the duration of protection that that would provide? And I think, like Stephen said, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic that this is going to happen sometime in the next, you know, in the foreseeable future, probably not before January. And then there may have to be some other considerations about, is this something we need to get boosters for, or what does that look like? Uh, you know, we get a flu shot every year in part because of the way that the flu antigens shift. And then the models predict which antigens are going to be predominant in the population. And then, they, you know, and so I think it's, it's, there's lots and lots vaccine science is kind of, you know, the, the, it's interesting because once you get into the weeds and 
into the intricacies of it, there's a lot of little other problems um, to deal with, you know, safety and efficacy wise. And so it'd be interesting to see kind of how, how things shape up. But I think there's reason to be optimistic that we will have something. Um, uh, do you feel like that's accurate, Stephen? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I don't know if Moderna is doing this, but if it's some kind of going into human trials, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean like Mark, your hospital will get like a couple rounds to try, or is it just very localized to the actual facility that's doing the research? Yeah. I mean, it, it depends. So there's different phases of clinical trials with any sort of new pharmaceutical. And so initially you have to show safety in non-human models usually. And then the first phase is just safety and not efficacy. And then oh. you move on and you kind of progress through and, and there's there's guidelines and, you know, based on your study design and the effect size you expect to see and other things, kind of the number of patients that you need to enroll in these studies in order to achieve statistical significance, which we had talked about yeah. um, on a previous episode. So, so essentially human trials is, it would be that next stage and likely a safety phase. And so very, very early prior to looking at things like efficacy outcomes. One of the things that has been thought about to sort of speed these things along a little bit is, which comes along with a real interesting ethical concern is, so frequently when, when testing vaccines, they're, they're administered to people in the population, but then you wait for them to be naturally infected if they're going to become infected. And then you can statistically extrapolate the efficacy based off of that, based off the expected attack rate in that population. A way of increasing your statistical power is to ask people to volunteer to get a vaccine and then a couple of weeks later to be challenged with an infection to basically try to give them coronavirus and see what happens. And of course that, that requires, you know, a person to have full, full consent and, and to be fully aware of what's going to happen and to recognize their risks and these sorts of things. And it's, so there are a lot of questions about whether this, this would work, but that, that is a way that has been tossed around to potentially speed up our ability to, 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 to determine the efficacy of these vaccines. And that's one of the sort of the debates that's really going on in both policy and epidemiology communities right now to think about how those would look, what's sorts of sizes you would need and what sorts of risks people would need to would need to take to do that and whether that's that's worth it and and ethically okay not to put too fine of a point on it, but this is another instance of sort of this really interesting intersection between we've got essentially bio biochemistry we've got epidemiology you know we have statistics and ethics that are all converging on a sort of a single decision node and that's kind of an interesting and i think we see these and have seen lots of instances of that throughout i think it's just another layer of what you were talking about mark a few weeks ago uh, the distinction between anecdotal data and the clinical uh, research and the the ethics involved with that, and this is just another layer of that same 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 issues, right? Still trying to create uh, safety for the vaccine and a means that maybe might expedite. And there's probably some ways you can expedite it that are truly just fundamentally wrong, and there's some um, that may or just gray and require a large amount of discussion and other professionals involved to be able to add their uh, their their part of the equation to this to the search. Okay. The second part of his question, I'm going to read this verbatim. It was really good. Uh, thank you, John, for suggesting this. He says, secondly, I've drawn a lot from John Barry's book, The Great Influenza on the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, which Stephen has talked about at the very beginning. I think there are a lot of similarities. A virus began in the spring, initial lockdowns, including in San, San Francisco, a second wave in the fall after the lockdowns were lifted, and a sharp discrepancy between what the medical experts were urging and what President Wilson and the government wanted. I've used these similarities on a basis for many of my own decisions in an attempt to assess risk. 
I very much appreciated one of uh, one of us sharing the comment by a deacon in their church that there is a difference between uncertainty and living the risk. Stephen, I think that was you in your parish. But I have gotten pushback from some folks who claim that the 1918 pandemic is completely different, that there that that we are far more knowledgeable now than people were then. One of my friends even claimed that they didn't know about germ theory back then. And uh, I had to point to the evidence in the historical record that they did, in fact, know about germ theory. But my question would be, to what extent can we use the historical record from the 1918 pandemic to try to assess the risks in our current situation? Stephen? Yeah, so I think that there are absolutely a lot of important parallels that we can draw between the the current outbreak in 1918. I mean, that's... That's really that's actually one of the places where a lot of epidemiologists have gone for for historical examples of of what has happened. I mean, and actually one of the one of the ways that I envision the work that I do and as epidemiologists do is that in a sense we are we are historians of a sort. We're trying to unpick you know data, but that that's something that that is information about something that has happened in the past, and to try to read into that and to understand what the story is behind that. And we're using the tools of mathematics to to try to pull out that story and that narrative. But but fundamentally, that's what we're doing. And so so. We're, we're constantly looking to historical examples like 1918 and more recently 2009 to understand sort of what is happening now. To sort of flesh out what John was saying, right, so 1918, we saw early infection in the spring, things sort of settled down a little bit over the summer, there were lockdowns, things resurged in the fall, and there were a couple of waves of transmission that occurred, and then ultimately the virus entered into seasonal circulation. Interestingly, in that outbreak, there was an early outbreak in New York City that was mm. one of the first places to get hit in the United States, whereas the rest of the country was less affected until the autumn wave that happened later on. Exactly the same scenario played out in 2009, where you had springtime infection, New York City gets hit first, the rest of the country is spared, low-level transmission over the summer, then a large spike in cases in the fall, and then a third wave the following spring. Same pattern played out. And it seems like there are a lot of similarities between those two pandemics and what is happening now. The mode of transmission is very similar. The fact that New York City was the place to get hit hardest first is, is I mean, amongst epidemiologists, that was ringing a lot of alarm bells because that sounds exactly like yeah. the other contagious respiratory pandemics that we've seen of this century, whereas other places in the United States did not see as much transmission yet. We entered sort of more of a peacetime scenario in the summer, and then things ramped up in the autumn, which we, we haven't yet seen, but that's something that that we're thinking is a higher, you know, is, is more and more of a possibility as, as this epidemic goes on. So, so, you know, again, despite the fact that there are a lot of really important differences between the coronavirus and the seasonal flu, I think that there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn between pandemic flu and the coronavirus. And that's absolutely, I think, 1918 is a good place to look for for sort of an example of how our society has fared and come through one of these crises in the past. You know, I, it reminds me of Notre Dame. Uh, I, I was wondering why they did this, and this could be part of the reason Maybe they're seeing the same kind of model, or maybe they're uh, talking to you guys at Harvard. I'm not sure, <laughs> but they they're choosing a different paradigm for their school. They're starting school earlier, so they and then no break, and then getting the heck out early for the semester, uh, as if maybe they're getting wind that maybe there could be another surge. Let's just start early August, have no fall break, and be done by early November, and they yeah. never leave, right? And then they go right. home and they and they start the new semester. That's that's fascinating. I mean, the fact that you said New York 
also both times got a surge. And to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, if you just talk to any epidemiologist, this is potentially obvious, right? What's <laughs> to be expected? Well, let's get into what you think by now would be the meat of our of our podcast. We're now 35 minutes in, but hey, it doesn't matter because we do it one time a week now. So, <laughs> so we we'll are going for three and a half hours to get you guys all the content you deserve. We want to talk about opening. As of today, I think all the U.S. is open in one way or another, is starting that process. I know in my own circles, I'm getting a lot of questions of what it means to be reopened. I think there's obviously, it's so complicated because every state has a different method by which they're going to reopen. So then if you talk to another friend from a different state, they're going to have a different perspective and a different outline. It's causing really mass confusion. I myself am confused. You know, I was talking to you guys off the recording. And now I'll share it that, you know, my mother-in-law was scheduled for greening and uh, got called and was screened f- for the next month and for the end of June. And she's 86 years old. She had co- she had ca- uh, cancer last year, uh, colon cancer. So I get part of the reason why, but this nervous of like, oh, wait, should we allow her to go in the end of June for the screening? Or is it too dangerous? What's the risk? Uh, why are they doing that? Is it because they're trying to reopen elective surgeries? Should I be going back to work? How should I go going back to work? Should I be with my friends? Should I go to the restaurant? How should I go to the restaurant? I have no idea, guys. So I want to throw it to you guys of like, what have you are experiencing? Mark, you went out into the wild for the first time. I mean, hospital life, you're always in, but I'm talking about- That's right. You're like, yeah, that's into the other wild west. Uh, and experiences. So what was it like for you and how are you dealing with this? And yeah, yeah. You know, I think you, what strikes me the most, I think right now is that everybody, everybody is sort of figuring this out on their own. And in a similar way that we had at the beginning where we were saying, you know, this, we're all going through the same thing, but we're experiencing it in radically different ways. We're experiencing our own sense of our personal risk in different ways and our communal risk. You know, some of us are mostly concerned with being asymptomatic transmitters. Others of us have sick family members at home. You know, we have, it's just like massively different for everybody. And I feel like that is, has been the theme too, as I've started to engage people around reopening. It's just not only is the experience of it really different, but also just sort of the sense of how do we make our decisions is just wildly different. And so, you know, one thing, this, this is silly, but I'll share it with you because it's silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I've been thinking to myself as we start to do this is that, you know, I think there's sort of a false sense that there's a binary, right? That we're either closed or we're open. Um, And we talk about that similarly with like viral transmission that like, it's sort of the time and contact and the degree of contact that matters in addition to just being in any contact with somebody who has it, you know, it's not on or off switch on some level. There's a lot of things that you can do to mitigate that risk, right? So similarly with, I've been thinking with myself of, you know, I don't have a particular point value, but I've been thinking in the terms of sort of reopening points, right? So it's not as if all of a sudden I'm going to go out and do all of the important things that I've needed to do for the last six to eight weeks, but I might pick one of those things and choose to spend, spend those points on that thing, you know, not acknowledging that if I do all of the things, you know, in the same way that it's so it's, I don't think we can stress enough how hard it is for individuals to think in exponential functions. Um, and, and, you know, so I'll, I'll come back to that, but the idea that being that every single contact I have is a chance of, you know, kind of growth, exponential growth of, of infection. And so it still makes sense. We we're, getting out there, you know, we're engaging in the economy, we're seeing, you know, important people 
in kind of a measured way. But that's not the same thing as saying, now we're going to kind of drop to this threshold where I'm seeing everybody, I'm doing everything. And so just kind of thinking about being really judicious and using that as a resource that is limited rather than just like a binary where it's like we're flipped and now we're open uh, has been one of the ways I've been thinking about that. Stephen, what do you think? Is that uh, methodologically sound or you want to, you want to tweak that a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that's, that's exactly it. I've been thinking about that binary nature of this a lot too, or that like prior to this, it was in some senses much easier because there is the restriction was what you couldn't do. And now there's a lot wider possibility of what you can do. Like what is permissible is now this, this much wider range. And now, now we have to sort through the much messier and darker and weirder place of like, what should we do? You know, that's, and that's, that's tricky because that, that demands a lot of just a lot of personal attention and, and assessing one's values and these sorts of things. I like, and I like the, I like the point system you were talking about too. Um, I've been thinking about, so there's, I don't know if either of you have heard about this, but one way that psychologists have tried to help people sort of understand like how life can be different for people with different sorts of physical limitations or these sorts of things is in terms of spoons. I don't know why they picked spoons as the object, but the idea is that you start your day with a certain number of spoons to give. And, and each thing that you do over the course of the day requires a certain number of spoons. You know, you can have a conversation with somebody, but that, you know, you you give them a couple of spoons and you have fewer to expend on going for a run or doing some kind of work or, you know, what have you. And at the end of the day, your spoons are spent. They're spent. They're just sort of, and, and each of us has sort of a different number of these that we have to spend and, and, and the amount changes over the course of our lives too. You know, if you're, if you're very anxious, you might just start off with fewer. If you have some, some difficult medical condition or something like that, that, that sort of modulates how many you have to give. And I think that that sort of applies here too, because, you know, we can think of, think of these points or these spoons, both in terms of, of, of risk, but also, also really being mindful of that everything that we do right now for most of us, I would say, bears this greater cognitive burden, you know, going outside just is, is just not what it was for me. You know, it's, it, it, you're, I'm still assessing risk and I'm thinking about whether I'm maintaining the right distance from people. And there's, there's a certain stress that just comes with the fact that, you know, you're seeing businesses that are closed. And, and so part of it is, is both, both modulating, you know, the, how, how much you have to give in terms of reducing transmission, but then also how much you have to give and, and being real with ourselves that, that this is just a very difficult time. And even while some some things appear to be going closer to normal, they're still far from it and sort of having some grace with ourselves about that fact. Yeah. You know, I like that. I think that's definitely been my experience is just that it's, it, there's, it's actually split. It's, it's interesting. There is a higher cognitive burden to just like figuring out, you know, will, is it okay? Can I do this? Should I do this? When will I do it? Mm-hmm. With whom, you know, all of that. Then there's this other experience of being out, you know, and it's beautiful out and everybody's okay. And like, it, I don't see, you know, I don't see viral particles floating around and, and it feels, it feels good and it feels okay. You know, and there's this interesting way in which, again, that, that speaks to this part of us that is like, well, you know, I went out here and it was okay. So it must be okay for me to then go out here and that'll be okay too. And then like, maybe I'll have a dinner party here because it was okay the first two times and, and sort of this, this social momentum that we get, you know, and I think all of those things, not that that's bad, but again, that that we're just aware of this reality that our immediate experience of this has to be filtered through a kind of a higher level understanding of what's going on. Um, Also, the other thing that I've kind of experienced in conversations that that's not the same thing as being afraid. And I think that's, that's kind of the place that I kind of wanted to to take 
my experiences is that there's a, there's a sense that it's easy to see being really cautious as the same thing as being afraid um, or that wearing a mask or choosing not to do things that maybe other people are doing is because you're, you're still worried. You're like being kind of, you know, you're, you're living in this place of like coronavirus panic still while other people are like lifting themselves up and, and getting on with their lives. And so I think to me, it doesn't have to do so much with, I think it's important to kind of separate those things that, that we can be prudent without being afraid and we can be, you know, judicious about what we're doing and kind of make, make some of these decisions and have a lot of flexibility as other people make different decisions than we do, but not necessarily that this is driven by either a fear for what's going to happen in the fall or what's going to happen to me or, you know, any of these things. There, there's sort of different levels of, of prudence and different types of prudence. And, and it's tricky, you know, it's tricky. People are going to value different things, value different different experiences. They're going to go out for different reasons and kind of deal with all of the questions that have been raised, you know, in lots and lots of different ways. Um, but I think we kind of have to have that, that graciousness as we figure it out. Yeah. I love when you talked about this, the idea of incrementally opening yourself up to the, the next part of the world, the real world, which reminds me of, uh, okay, I hope I remember this thought. I have to say this tangent. So my wife was talking to our middle child about like, uh, what, you know, what makes you happy or what do you want to do? She's like, I, like, I want to go camping. And so you're like, Oh, that'd be great. And like, what other things make you happy? And he's like doing a uh, whole world things. And I was like, Oh, who he's trying to say is like, he just wants to get out and go outside of the house and just do be normal, you know, this craving. And I, we're all desiring to want to have some sense of normalcy, but I love this idea of that doing this doesn't mean us so that we're being afraid. And I feel like I'm being pigeonholed, even fearful to talk about it to my neighbors across by as somehow being single as being afraid. Where does that come from? I, I, I would tend to oversimplify things. So, and of course this, this podcast is about it's complicated. So I'm going against this, but I feel like part of this equation is that we, we look at things through a self-interested lens that why you're doing this because you're afraid it's self-interest you know, why on earth would you actually do something and, and sacrifice something for, for some other person? So it has to be because you're afraid. And I think that concept is hard for people to grasp naturally. And so when people, when you see people do this, it's always something because we're, we're limiting ourselves because we're afraid and that's a go-to and that's not necessarily the cause for us. It's because we are okay, but we don't want our mother-in-law to get sick and we're the primary caretaker. And I'm sure I'm not the only one in this, in the circles, uh, thinking that way. Another thing you mentioned of the the slippery slope, I you know I see this outside our yard. It starts with one or two people, and then now they're having barbecues in the backyard. And I feel like it's the wearing watch syndrome, right? Where you get a watch on, you get used to it, and then after a while, you really you feel like you're not doing anything. Oh, we're not really opening up, so we need to do something else. And you keep then you get used to it, and it's like the watch. You're like, oh, we're really not doing anything. We should probably open up and do something. And now we have this carnival with thousands of people, and there's tickets being sold in our in our, in our green belt, right? So it, it reminds me of that. And then the last thing that, that I love the idea of the spoons. When I, when I, the way I, I talk to other people about it is the idea that it's all about energy expenditure. I don't really think about it that way that, you know, I know there's different theories out there, but I kind of follow this idea that there's a limited amount of like willpower in the day energy. That's why when you get up in the morning, if you're going to work out, do it then, right, Matt, don't wait till to the night because you're not going to do it because you're just tired and you're going to eat the donut. You're just going to eat the donut, right? So we have a limited amount of energy and we have only a set amount of spoons. And once they're, once they're spent, they're spent. Uh, you know, I, and, and I think the, the caveat to this is that there are some things that give me life 
that then rebuild my energy. Reading a good book will all start tapping my energy back up, right? You know, there's certain things that we like that actually can build it back up. But when you're in a time like this, there's less things like that to build our energy back up, especially when, if you're kind of in the back of your mind, you're kind of just just, just maybe either ruminating or uh, obsessing or thinking about what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing. So then you're not having that natural environment that uh, helps you to get new energy. So it is a great idea to think about this idea of like, there is a limited amount of spoons and once they're out, they're out. I, I love that concept. Spoons are a lot easier than the abstract idea of energy. Uh, but there's still more things I want to talk about because I'm seeing the news last week that we're seeing uh, finally, even outside of New York, so take New York out of it, that actually the cases were decreasing. So we're, we're, I think we're doing good. Now, this is why I want to show the complexity of this. And then I just saw today about, oh, it looks like we're starting to increase again. And now it could be just time frame, right? I want to know from you, Stephen, where do you think we are? And I just think it's funny how like we're, on, we're not in one side or the other where I'm seeing uh, articles, I get it, the media does this, where, okay, Florida is starting to release people four days after there's increased cases. Four days after means nothing, right? I mean, that has not, I mean, you're just basically, I don't know, stabbing yourself in the back because that's because of the maybe something else, but not because they're opening up yet, right? Right. So where, do you th- where are we right now and what's considered safe when trying to enter back into the real world in light of where we see the trajectory of the cases at, at this moment today? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky. Like, it's like you say, I mean, a lot of places have seen cases begin to go down, but frankly, there's not a lot different now than there was two or three weeks ago okay. in most places, you know, and, and in some places that's not true. I mean, if you look at New York, like they've, they've actually brought down cases substantially, but they're one of the few places that really have a convincing downward trend that I've seen. A lot of other places, there's just like a lot of stochastic, regular statistical, whatever variation. And, and uh, yeah, like you were saying that uh, there's, there's this, uh, there's this huge temptation right now to take what we observe and to explain it by our behavior. And that's again one of these really tricky middle grounds because there's we we do have some control, right? There there are things that we can do to limit the transmission of disease, but opening up will you won't be able to see that effect in 4 days. You probably won't be able to see it for 2 weeks if that. And it'll only come through like sustained like long-term trends in one direction or another. And so so we kind of have to resist this this urge to like read significance into every little piece of information that we're getting. But it's tricky. You know, it's 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 really hard because that's that's what our that's what our mind do that's what we've you know that that that's what this this little instrument sitting on my shoulders is is, <laughs> sure. is there for right it's like yeah. to take information and to assign it meaning and and it's really really hard to resist that so i think that that's we're we're in for a prolonged phase of that where there's going to be a lot of ambiguous evidence right now where cases are going to be up but nope they're going to be going down we did something but was that the thing that caused the up and was it you know and i think it's going to be incredibly exhausting as a society because that's that's just what this summer i think is going to look like and so I think I think just walking into that with open eyes is going to be really important. I think the uncertainty that I see on Facebook of showing these these like really dramatic U.S. maps where it shows, look at this, the majority of the U.S. has hardly any cases or big things are, you know, and I saw an article about how like 200 counties or whatever don't have any cases whatsoever. And I think it just simply confirms the fact, I mean, these counties are the ones that are very rural 
you know, kind of, you know, the, the, the houses per square mile or three to four, typically, you know, it's not like clearly these epicenters in New York, which are just very consolidated, tight groups of people can spread this quickly. So again, tr- trying to throw these things up on Facebook to either, either A, to look at New York to make it overly scary, or it's some, a bunch of rural communities that have no spread, they, they have a reason for those, right? And so I think what we've learned from these series is that it's not only the, uh, the contact, but the duration, right, as well, by hanging for longer periods of time. I love that. It kind of started going viral, I guess, pun, mm-hmm. unintended, but it's just how it is. That one we, we referenced last week about that guy who wrote about the different viral shedding and the different rates and uh, helped to frame things. And I, I took a lot from that. And it gives me some sense of, uh, of solace that I can go out and do what I, you know, remain your six feet, um, wear a mask. And in, in worst case scenario, right, if you're outside and it's not prolonged, like less than five minutes, and they're not coughing or sneezing, right? These are very low risk things, right? That, that and, and to feel, because I'm on one side of the spectrum, guys, of like, uh, trying to edge our way to get out a little bit. And I'm probably one small fraction. There's the other ones who could probably rein it in a little bit, stop having their huge parties, right? So I have that one perspective. Okay, I think that wraps it up for this episode. I want to thank you guys for listening. If you want to get a hold of Steven, you can do that on Twitter. S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R. Me, about the podcast, M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R. Again, if you want to give a small donation, we'd love that. We'd greatly appreciate it. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, or just a one-time donation through PayPal or Venmo, and that's all in the show notes. And again, if you want to sign up, uh, go to livingthereal.com for my podcast that is out now and shortly on Apple Podcasts as well. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next Wednesday. Take care. Bye-bye.